Hi, everyone. I'm attorney Donna DiMaggio Berger, and this is Take It to the Board, where we speak condo and HOA. Mark Twain is quoted as saying, buy land, they're not making it anymore. Since land remains such a valuable asset, there is usually someone looking to develop and or redevelop it, and often that development is being constructed right next door to an established community, which can bring a host of headaches and trouble. Today, I'm going to be speaking with a partner of mine who helps people deal with all sorts of issues related to their property. Kathleen, or as we like to call her at Becker, Katie Berkey, is a Florida Bar Board Certified Specialist in City, County, and Local Government Law, and is a Certified Professional Planner by the American Institute of Certified Planners. Katie is the only practicing professional to hold both credentials in Southwest Florida and one of eight statewide. She represents clients in zoning, land use, and planning matters, and represents clients in local government administrative matters before city and county commissions, councils, and boards. Katie has been recognized by various publications and organizations as one of the best lawyers in America, a Florida rising star, a member of the legal elite, a legal up-and-comer, one of the top 40 under 40, and woman of the year. So with that illustrious introduction, Katie, welcome to Take It to the Board. Thank you, Donna, for having me. Katie, one of the reasons I so wanted to have you on the episode, we have not had a land use attorney on the on the show before. And as I mentioned in the introduction, there's a lot of cranes, there's a lot of construction going up next door to properties that we represent, properties that other attorneys represent. How can volunteer boards, managers, and association residents stay alert to possible land use changes in their vicinity? I think the best thing, if their budget allows, is to hire a land use attorney proactively. A land use attorney like myself can track vacant parcels in the vicinity or parcels that are ripe for redevelopment for any development proposals or filings or even pre-application meetings with city or county staff. Because what will be the most helpful for an association is the benefit of time. They want to be privy to what's going on as soon as possible so they can mobilize appropriately. So that's one way to get out ahead. And also looking for any changes of ownership that you can see are likely going to result in a development proposal coming later. And then it seems obvious, but monitor your mailbox, monitor the newspaper, and also look around you for public hearing notices that are posted on adjacent properties. If you're within a particular radius, you will get those required notices from city or county staff or the developer directly. To your point, Katie, I think absolutely, if you are in an established community and you're sitting next door or nearby a vacant lot, it makes sense to stay on top of what's going to happen. Of course, a lot of times we're dealing with not vacant lots. We're dealing with sometimes existing construction next door, right? And they might tear it down. Yeah. And the land use attorney who's savvy will be able to kind of parcel out what is right to be something else or even help you review the current zoning and future land use and advise on what land uses are permitted today, either by right, which means without an opportunity for public input, or by special exception or conditional use, which does require a public hearing, but the burden of proof is pretty straightforward for the developer too. So it's not only what could be that requires changes, but what is possible today without any zoning relief being required. Are there any sort of tip-offs that would indicate to a land use attorney like you that a property may be ripe for teardown? I see most commonly a domino effect. So rezonings or comprehensive map amendment changes are happening down a particular corridor. 
And as those changes happen, you can see where the change is going and where it's going to be more easily supported for that change, given the history down this particular corridor, for example. I've been talking on the last few episodes about potential condominium terminations, right? In Florida, now that we have these new safety laws, there's a lot of new requirements in terms of engineering and reserve funding for older coastal buildings. And we're seeing in many of these communities, people are evaluating whether or not it makes sense to continue to pour money into these older buildings to maintain them or just to terminate and sell to a developer. And I've always thought that developers will mostly purchase these properties and put up another multifamily building, residential building. But that's not always the case. I can imagine some developers might tear down an older residential building and put up perhaps something else. Yeah. A mixed use is very popular still. And planners generally are supportive of mixed use projects depending on where they're located because the idea is to have accessory uses in proximity to the residential to minimize traffic trip generation. And also that's better for the environment, right? We're spending less time in the car, less greenhouse gas emissions. So those are quite popular where it's sometimes a residential condominium or apartment complex above, commercial tenant spaces below or a commercial condominium below with that blend. And sometimes there's even incentives to do mixed use where you could get additional height or density bonuses because you're putting those related uses close together. I can tell you as an association attorney who deals with many mixed use communities, it is an uneasy marriage. (laughs) It may be great for the environment and everything you just said, but here's the problem. The way the documents are typically drafted, there are incentives from the developer to sell those commercial spaces. And how do they incentivize it? By excluding the commercial owners from having to pay certain costs and expenses, by making it difficult for the residential owners to amend the documents if it impacts the commercial owners at all, sometimes allowing the commercial owners to have really free reign when it comes to the exterior appearance of their units. So it's not the easiest marriage. And that underscores the importance for any buyer to do their homework, do their due diligence, have a sophisticated land use or real estate attorney help before you close on those units. Do you understand what the documents provide and what challenges are foreseeable over time once you take title? So let's say, Katie, a client calls you to say that they've been approached by a developer who's putting up a condo hotel next door. You're an older condo building, maybe let's say 75 units, and you get the call, the developer calls and says, hey, we've got great news. We're going to put up a condo hotel next door. This is going to be great for you. Of course, the developer is going to say it's going to be great for you. So walk us through the next step. You're the attorney for that existing association. What are the next steps with that client? Well, I always recommend first trying to engage in an amicable working relationship with that developer. You're going to be neighbors at least for a certain period of time till they sell. And having open lines of communication that are friendly, at least at the initial stages, tends to breed greater opportunities for compromise and a greater long-term relationship as close neighbors. So making contact, being friendly, you don't want to come in both this swinging right out the gate so you really understand what they're proposing. Because sometimes there are benefits to the project being in close proximity to you in terms of increasing property values for all. If it's a higher end product with great amenities and landscaping, those things can be great for the neighborhood. But give them an opportunity to explain what they're proposing and seek that input from the developer, but also independently verify, right? Because they have an angle too. So if you have a land use attorney already retained, then the next step would be for that attorney to make a request for all public records related to that project. So that could be pre-application, 
staff comments, and sometimes they're even audio recorded so you can hear from the developers, agents for yourself, what they're looking to do. All correspondences, of course, any notices of public hearing, depending on where we are in that process. Your question assumes that we're at the very early stages, but sometimes by the time the association knows, we already have hearings scheduled. So all public records related to that proposal. And the land use attorney can help triage and review those public record documents to advise the association what possible or very likely impacts may result if the project is approved. Would you typically be dealing with their with the developer's council or directly with developer? How, how does it typically play out? Generally, the developer's council. Sometimes in the early stages, though, it's the, en- the developer's engineer who filed the application. And sometimes there's very limited information for the developer, him or herself. So starting there, always asking if they are working with council and then Of course, as Donna knows, too, we're ethically obligated to correspond with attorneys that have been retained on behalf of their clients. So getting to the right person, whether it's the developer directly, if they're going solo, the engineer or other agent listed on the application, and then to the extent they are represented by counsel. You start out amicable. How does it go south? Well, it often goes south either because the day-to-day realities of what the project have not set in for the association or sometimes promises are made along the way that aren't commemorated in writing. And I think sometimes, too, for associations, the challenge is, too, you might have board leadership that is willing to compromise and work with the developer because they're looking at the bigger picture of how this affects all their residents and their investments. But then you fundamentally, like with any other community association issue, have individual residents that don't necessarily agree with that approach or because their unit is going to be more impacted than the rest feel even more strongly. And sometimes the compromise that the board and their land use attorney and the developer have all kind of narrowed in on, it can address every individual concern on a unit by unit basis. So for example, one particular unit may have compromised waterfront views as a result of the project. The developer may have already in an effort to compromise, reoriented the building or taking down some stories or reduce density. But the building is proposed and we can only compromise so much. So that's always a challenge too. But I think the key is directing individual unit owners to where these resources are if they want to independently verify what the application means for them and their financial interests. So the association doesn't have a duty to keep them informed at every step of the way, but also if you want to see how the project is coming, this is where you go at the city or county to get that information as well. And um, as part of the routine board meetings, just giving updates as to where we are um, with the developer, what roads have had some traction, because it's all a quid pro quo and based on priority and that will depend on the project and the community, what those priorities are. I imagine it's a challenge if you're in the midst of working with a community in terms of construction going up next door and the board changes hands. If the board doesn't have staggered terms and the entire board gets voted off, or at least a majority of the board is voted off, does that ever happen to you where you've had a board change hands and now you have to completely switch directions on your negotiations? Yes. And thankfully, the boards I've had the privilege of working with have been really aware of that potential issue. And so even as directors cycle off the board or if they're not reelected, they understand the importance of keeping that institutional knowledge as part of the process so we don't lose momentum. And they appoint them to a committee 
and bring them into the attorney-client privilege bubble. Um, so our office is authorized to continue speaking with that former director, now committee chair, because from the developer side too, the attorneys often take it to a certain point. And then if there's budget constraints, sometimes the board president will engage directly with the developer to fine tune some of the more minor points. And the developer doesn't want to be reintroduced to new players at that very late stage. So I think that's one way to overcome that is still keep them in the fold to the extent they weren't problematic. What are your typical deal points in a shared use agreement with a developer? Some typical deal points that are often very problematic, if not addressed, first and foremost here in Florida, stormwater management. Each new project is going to be responsible for retaining and treating their own stormwater But a lot of infill development are a part of a much more regional shared system that at one point in time may have been under unified control. And now there's four or five sub-associations, a master, adjacent out parcels that are always contemplated to tie in but haven't been developed yet. So underscoring who's going to be responsible for what and who the ongoing maintenance responsibility entity is going to be because the developer, as Donna knows through her work too, the developers come and go, there are bankruptcies, things have a way of happening over time. And so what seems like it could work today, we also need to anticipate a worst case scenario 30 years from now if everyone throws their hands up and walks away. Also having realistic expectations with respect to stormwater and part of that is being informed by a civil engineer with experience in Florida stormwater management. Because folks think of the worst case scenario, the Hurricane Ian's, the Hurricane Nicole's, the Hurricane Irma's. But those are also, Ian in particular, I believe was a 500 year storm event. So God willing, knock on wood, is a once in a lifetime storm. We don't engineer our systems to account for a Hurricane Ian every summer, for example. It's a hundred year storm event is generally the threshold. So I don't begrudge residents and boards from having that top of mind, especially with that experience only being in the last couple of months. But it's also unrealistic to expect that there will be no flooding in a storm like that. An engineer can help qualify what's reasonable to look for from the developer in terms of the stormwater improvements. So no one adjacent is flooded out in what would be a normal storm situation for the association. And if your association is seeing that, uh, a land use attorney can also get with the city and county to say, hey, listen, when's the last time you did a countywide assessment of the whole system? Because to your point, if there's blockages somewhere along the way to the final discharge point, it backs up for everyone else connected to that system. So they can help you figure out when was the last time it was looked at? Does it account for the most recent big density projects that have come online since that are then benefiting from that shared system. There are opportunities to work with the public work staff too to see if there are improvements that can be made or more regular maintenance that will help promote the health of the whole system for the good of all. Let's talk about a usage that your client says, absolutely not. We cannot abide by this, okay? How do you determine if a usage is not compatible? It's not commercially compatible next door to your residential client. Sure, and that's a great question, Donna. Almost always for land use and zoning approvals, one of the criteria for approval is that the project you're proposing will not be incompatible or adversely affect your neighbors. Now, with by right zoning, let's say the adjacent property is commercially zoned right now and they want to put in a restaurant. Those permitted uses that don't require a public hearing have already been vetted and generally are determined 
to not be incompatible with the surrounding area. So in other words, where they put that commercial zoning, they gave thought to what's in the area and the coexistence of those uses. But for the sake of example, let's say they're looking to rezone residential multifamily to commercial and it's surrounded by residential multifamily currently. Compatibility for boards to understand doesn't mean identical or the same. The idea is different uses can coexist in proximity to one another without being detrimental to the surrounding area. And that could, the factors to consider when weighing what is compatible and what isn't is a, a fundamentally what use is proposed and what uses are surrounding, but also massing, the size, height, and oscillation of a building, the architectural style, the demands on traffic and other public facilities, setbacks and screening. Because even if a use would otherwise be incompatible, you can mitigate or reduce the negative impact by having increased buffers and additional screening, either um, a privacy wall, fencing, vegetation, things of that nature. And then, of course, noise, hours of operation, and lighting. And I'm seeing this lately now in a post-pandemic world where more restaurants want to do drive-through and curbside. So a restaurant, a sit-down restaurant may not be incompatible, but when you piggyback a drive-through with a squawk box and extended hours till 9 or 10 at night from that squawk box, then that creates perhaps an incompatibility depending on the development pattern in the surrounding area. I've seen also with restaurants and nightclub uses where now, in part because of the pandemic, they have garage roll-up doors. So if they have live music inside, once they open those doors, it might as well be outside. So those finer points where you might not think anything about the entry door being a traditional door versus a roll-up, that's something that's getting more and more popular. And also for the 55 and over communities, what we're seeing too is if traditional housing or all age housing is proposed next door. There are concerns not only about noise, but school bus traffic, where school bus locations are going to be and what that will mean for the 55 and over folks that have never historically had to worry about that additional traffic. Well, I was going to ask about the the housing for older persons. What about a a school going up next door or nearby? I'm so glad we're talking about this because this is an example of how a land use attorney can help fine tune what experts in association would benefit from having in their arsenal. So a situation like that um, may be a function of more so traffic. So if if you're trying to poke holes in the developer's argument that they're entitled for a rezoning or this particular approval, part of the compatibility analysis is, are there adequate facilities available? And that includes roads and transportation networks. So you have to, and, and transportation engineers can look at the type of traffic, school buses versus passenger vehicles and things of that nature. I imagine that in your line of work, you've come across the not in my backyard mindset, right? No matter what it is. Can you give us a few examples of those not in my backyard? I'm actually working on an article right now, how to find that middle ground to convert NIMBYs, not in my backyard, to YIMBYs, yes, in my backyard, where it's actually an asset to the community and they want it once they fine tune the points of compromise with the adjacent developer. What kind of development do people fear most? I will tell you, when we were going after the cell tower in my community, there were a lot of people that had concerns about the health issues, the health impact of having, you know, whether or not it's warranted, a feeling's a feeling. So people living in the community didn't feel good about having that. From your experience, what kind of developments do people fear the most? 
Well, and lately, as land gets scarcer, it seems to be not necessarily what you would expect, but the high-density residential infill development. And it's funny, the folks that tend to come out and object live in similar communities themselves, but they were approved five, ten years ago. They want to drop the gate behind them. They want no more traffic, none of that nature. And I think also um, with a high-density product, it tends to be taller or closer together with maybe less buffer spaces and then traffic generation, of course, and also school impact. Because if you're in a favorable school district, they don't want excess capacity on their great schools. So we're seeing that to be more and more of an issue. You talked about advocacy. You help communities who've been tagged with code violations. We've got more of these buildings now that are being tagged as, you know, cities and counties become a lot more proactive in the aftermath of the Surfside tragedy. What do you usually recommend attend a municipal or county code enforcement hearing with you? Well, most issues can be resolved in advance of a hearing. And that's always the hope in terms of, yes, we are in fact in violation, but we agree to comply by this X date, certain or um, signing an agreed code order or agreement to mitigate things of that nature where the board can weigh in and decide at a meeting how they want to proceed. But then some things just have to be a game day decision. So I always recommend if things are at all uncertain in terms of what the violation is or how it'll be mitigated and by when one or two directors, but not a quorum attend with that have been given authority from the board at large to proceed in a certain corralled series of steps. So they can be nimble and make decisions on the fly, but they know the do not exceed line. So in other words, don't promise to mitigate within seven days if we really need 30. So they're corralled and their decision-making authority has been contemplated in advance but then they could be a little nimble as the hearing goes. Are you finding that local governments are still being fairly flexible when it comes to deadlines for repair work? It depends on how substantial the repair. It depends how many complaints they get, how aggressive they are in getting it reconciled. Uh, it also depends if the viol- alleged violator is a repeat offender. So if an association is historically dinged once or twice a year for nuisance accumulation or horticultural waste pileups, things like that, or failing to mow, then they're not going to be as generous the fourth, fifth, sixth violation, especially for the same type of violation. Do you recommend bringing the engineer with you to these hearings, particularly if the violation hearing pertains to repair work? Yes. And for example, if it's stormwater, if you're lacking littoral plantings, or if a culvert is collapsed, Um, If you're not getting traction out ahead of a hearing with your engineer's help to either um, support a request for a continuance or additional time, I would definitely bring your technical experts with you because that is a quasi-judicial process with an opportunity to present and inform, and that may help reduce whatever penalties are associated or help buy you more time. So I'm going to take advantage of having you on this podcast and ask you a few things that I always get asked. One of the questions I get asked is, why is the association being tagged with a violation when it's the individual owners who are committing the violation? So an example of this happened in one of my communities recently. Board found out, it's a new board, that owners had sealed off their secondary exterior doors. Building department came out and gave a very tight deadline for the association to correct this. Well, now the association has to pursue these owners because it's work they've done and it's their unit. 
So the question I get is, well, why does the building department go after these owners directly? Why are they coming after the association? Well, and under statute, code enforcement staff is obligated to notify the record property owner per the property appraiser's records or the tax collector's records. So sometimes the records aren't correct, and that's something I recommend in association, especially that has transfer and ownership review and approval authority, to review the property appraiser's records and the tax collector's records to make sure that individual unit property is not inadvertently in the name of the association. That's step one. Step two, for example, the exterior door that you mentioned, if that's technically part of the common elements, the exterior side of the door, then the property appraiser likely has that listed as common element property in the name of the association. So maybe there are some code enforcement officers that are just out to be a thorn in everyone's side, but generally (laughs) they do their homework, but they don't need to independently verify that the records from the property appraiser are correct. They just are legally obligated to notify that owner identified there. Um, And that's something, if you have a land use attorney, if you think you've been cited unfairly or improperly, as soon as possible, it makes sense to make contact with the city or county and say, listen, that's actually a unit owner controlled door. We did not authorize or endorse that work. It was independently done. They may still cite you if it's part of the common elements, but that'll be part of the narrative you tell in advance of any hearing and then at the public hearing as well, is who's the owner that's responsible. Because ultimately, you got to remember, they're looking for compliance. So if they cite the wrong party or a party that really has no control to fix the issue, they may reissue the notice in the name of the unit owner directly. It may still be officially in the name of the association, but they'll do a courtesy notice to the unit owner. And then the association may also, under the negligence or unlawful acts language under their documents, uh, there's usually an unlawful use provision that you can't operate your unit um, in a fashion that violates local ordinance. So if the association is getting dinged, and let's say there are resulting fines in the name of the association, there may be an opportunity to recoup possibly the fines that are resulting because of this unit owner's action. So I can't let you leave this episode without talking about a really exciting topic, easements. (laughs) And I say that, but I I can't tell you how many people misquote what an easement is. They'll use it almost as if somehow the property's been transferred, that it imposes, you know, both maintenance obligations and confers ownership rights. So, you know, we deal with easements all the time. In HOAs, typically we're looking at easements for drainage or utility maintenance, um, dealing with the swales in a lot of our HOAs in our vertical um, communities, our condos and cooperative multifamily buildings. We're dealing with easements for cable. Often we're dealing with beach access. So can you give us just a a little bit of an overview on easements? Sure. And I think the point of clarification for lay people is that it doesn't convey an ownership interest. Your point, Donna, it is a use right. And generally, easements run with the land and benefit successors and interest and entitle. And that's different than a license agreement, which is specific to a particular owner and point in time. So there may be a license agreement, for example, with a memorandum of understanding and compromise with an adjacent developer, the association might be willing to grant a license for access or staging of construction materials because they now know and trust this particular developer entity, but they might not want to go so far as an easement in perpetuity binding on any subsequent purchaser of the adjacent property. So those are the two kind of use right options to be aware of. And that is 
a function of the easement instrument itself, which can take a number of forms, either an express grant of easement that's recorded in the public records, or it could be a dedication on a subdivision plat. And it can be silent as to maintenance altogether, which 20 or 30 years ago was pretty commonplace, especially for drainage, where it'll say dedicated for proper drainage purposes, but it's silent as to who maintains that drainage. And that's really generally intended to um, to reserve the right for adjacent properties to deposit or deliver their stormwater runoff into your lakes, for example. Counties and cities now and developers understand that not addressing maintenance is a huge problem. 30, 40 years later, bankruptcies and a number of things. Um, so they generally now are coupled with an affirmative maintenance responsibility, whether it be the county, the city, um, a CDD, a community development district, or individual association. You really have to read the language carefully because to your point, just because you have an easement doesn't mean there's a mandatory maintenance obligation. Correct. And easement instruments can be amended with the consent of both parties over time unless they are precipitated by a governmental requirement. So, for example, if it's a plat dedication, you, you may need to amend the plat. Um, but if it's a private agreement between two owners, let's say, for access rights into a common driveway, those parties over time can modify and amend and re-record. But sometimes along the way, pertinent provisions get lost. And I've been dealing with a matter um, lately, too, where there's a successor owner who stepped into the shoes of the original owner and there were probably 20 amendments over time to this easement but one paragraph was inadvertently deleted that pertained to ongoing maintenance so they thought they had maintenance obligations went ahead to go and do maintenance and then lo and behold that language was missing and then thankfully the parties were amenable to getting it put back in and reconciling it because they all had been operating as if it had still been there but it's um, paying attention along the way as things change, too. I mentioned in the introduction that you are a certified professional planner. What exactly does that mean? Yes, and let me back up because a lot of folks aren't even sure what a planner even is. The planners are the, the developers and keepers of land use plans and regulations that create and manage communities that will accommodate future growth and also service availability. So we want to make sure we're putting the right uses in the right place that will be supported in a way that isn't detrimental. Those are the local government planners. And then there's folks like myself that are policy planners that help clients navigate that maze of regulations too um, to get their projects online. In terms of being a certified professional planner, it's a nationwide verifier of professional planning credentials, the American Institute of Certified Planners. The AICP designation recognizes a blend of verified professional planning experience, academic credentials, a comprehensive planning exam that covers of statistics, case law, food systems planning, resiliency planning, what I would consider um, urban and regional traditional planning theory. It's 12 or 13 different buckets of information that appear on that exam. So it is quite burdensome. And once you pass that comprehensive examination, you're also committing to maintain continuing education credits. So you're on top of all the latest developments in the planning discipline. And you're also agreeing to uphold the highest and most ethical standards of planning practice. So it's quite an endorsement of where you've been and what your experience is, but also where you're committed to going. 
How many communities do you think truly engage in both short-term and long-term strategic planning? Oh, probably very few. I think it tends to be very reactionary in part because of the board's directors always changing. It's hard to have that continuity. But just like with city and county governments, I would urge boards to have a short, mid, and long-term plan. I love that because I agree with you. I think that they're always putting out fires. And I also think when when new board members cycle in, nobody really sits them down and says, here's the plan we're in the midst of. We're, you know, 20% into this plan or 40% into it. It's like everything starts all over again. And so if you could encourage people listening to undergo that kind of planning, I think it would be incredibly useful. Absolutely. And I think part of that mid to long term plan would be in concert with a land use attorney to to triage the surrounding landscape that greatly affects the association, too, because how they prioritize funding, spending that needs to capture a possible fight or negotiation down the road. If you're surrounded by properties that are right for development with everything you do, you are a very successful attorney by that whole list of accomplishments I read at the outset. It's a challenge. I mean, I remember I'm actually, I don't know if you know this, I'm actually a condo attorney because of my son, Ryan. I say to him, this is, this is your fault. (laughs) Because when I started, I was actually working at a real estate and banking firm in downtown Miami. And we were living in Aventura and, you know, I just didn't see myself continuing to commute down there and continuing to do that kind of work. And I just sort of wound up being contacted by Becker, who had a flex time program and sounded great to me. It sounded like just the type of environment I wanted. Uh, I was able to work 15 hours a week. And then that eventually, as the kids got older, I, I went back full time. But I did want to talk to you a little bit about balancing and what you think is needed in terms of a corporate culture, a firm culture to embrace women who have young children in the workplace. Absolutely. And I'm so glad we get a chance to talk about this because it's a passion of mine to help the women coming up behind me to not have to struggle the same way you and I are or have or uh, will in the future. And I think it's important for employers, whether they be law firms or management companies, first and foremost, it comes from a place of decency and just great empathy. You, new parents, women, men, you're tired. You're, you're physically recovering as a woman to postpartum. And I think just being mindful and aware of the fact that that parent's life has forever changed. They are not the person they were yesterday once that little peanut is born. And so especially coming back from parental leave, a nice note of encouragement, a small display of flowers, something um, to let them know that you recognize that they're a changed person and you're supportive of them on that journey and just make it a little easier, especially that first day back. I don't know if you remember, Donna, and my oldest son is Ryan also, by the way. It's hard and you're leaving them in daycare sometimes for the first time. And I remember eating my lunch at my desk and just crying because I felt so overwhelmed by not being with him. And then also I think I had colleagues who were much older gentlemen who were thinking, oh, Katie is going to be upset, but let's like throw her in because she'll want to be distracted. And instead it had the opposite effect of this great sense of overwhelm and not feeling terribly supported and no one seeing what I just went through over this three month journey as being hard and challenging and that it was just business as usual. So I think the, the decency and empathy goes a long way as a starting point. So I have two kids. I have Ryan and Lauren. They're both adults now. But I remember before Ryan was born, I'm eight and a half months pregnant. I am wearing a yellow, I just have a picture of this, a yellow suit. 
<laughs> well, maternity suit. And I'm, I'm just huge. And I just remember feeling even that when you talk about a sense of decency. And I remember being, I, I attended a hearing in court and I just felt so awkward and so uncomfortable. And again, I remember people tended to, especially judges and other lawyers, they acted like you weren't pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> like it wasn't happening. <laughs> You know, I needed them to clear the aisle for me. And it does make a difference when it's treated in a different way, when it's like acknowledged and you understand that, that, you know, you're, you're going through something here. Yes. Just like any other major life shift, whether it's a loss in the family or something too, even though sometimes people feel uncomfortable broaching it, I think not acknowledging that it's happening is far worse. If anyone's uncomfortable in directly addressing it, just think of ways um, proactively that could make new parents in your office more comfortable or pregnant women in your office more comfortable. If, if you're doing a big all-hands attorney retreat, for example, and it's all day and you only do one mid-morning break and a lunch break and a mid-afternoon break, but you know women on your team are pregnant, have more bathroom breaks. Just carve out the time for them to go stretch their legs, go do what they need to do. Just make it easier so they don't have to raise their hand and ask or women that are breastfeeding and pumping. Just have the space available for them, talk to them separately. So you're not calling attention to it in case anyone is embarrassed. Although my personal take is normalization is key. So I'm not shy. I breastfed three babies. I had a little cow hang tag on my door. People knew that that's why I was there. Cause I thought if I'm candid, it makes it easier for other women to just exist at that life stage and not have to make apologies for it. And I think culturally too. So we talked about normalization and trying to be proactively accommodating. But I think also shutting down negative talk or complaints about working parents that do take leave, for example. So in other words, the mindset, and I see this more with new dads where there is a gender neutral leave policy and they are taking leave with their spouse or significant other. And it's they're seen as being less devoted or less committed to their job. And that's a vacation. And Don and I both know personally that maternity leave, paternity leave is not a vacation. You're working harder than ever on very limited sleep and hardly drinking water, hardly eating. Um, so that um, that perception and from the top down, shutting down those sorts of remarks, either directed at new moms or dads, I think goes a long way. So folks, actually, if you do have gender neutral parenting, a parental leave policies in place, which I fully support. So both aspects of a couple are partnering in it together, which ultimately helps the the woman who has been historically disproportionately absorbing a lot of that work, making it easier for both to take that time with their baby and enjoy it and come back refreshed and even be more loyal and devoted to you and your firm and want to hang around. Because that, that blip of time in someone's life and their career is so small. But if you have gender neutral parental leave policies, free or subsidized backup childcare options for men and women, parents, affinity groups, working parent groups within your place of employment, things like that go a long way to breed loyalty and keep great talent in-house. If you go to their website, mindfulreturn.com, they have a lot of great resources for employees and employers. And they also offer a four-week transition back to work class that I took with my first pregnancy. And that is a great low cost benefit to add to your employer, your employee benefit package too. I believe it's only $400 per person. 
But if you offer it for new parents, women or men, it kind of frees up your headspace to think, what are the challenges I'm going to have when I go back to work? How do I plan to transition my workload before going on leave? So the employer and those covering for the person on leave are best equipped and everyone has a greater chance of success. So that's something that's really economical that I know for me, I found very, very helpful. What's that resource again? www.mindfulreturn.com. And they have resources for new moms and dads, for employers. They have an alumni network that I'm a part of, having been a graduate of the program with my oldest son. And every employer I know that has offered it to their employees has no regrets. They, and with my last pregnancy, actually, I used the same maternity transition plan I had with my first and tweaked it. And it sets expectations when you plan to come back, what your transition and phasing plan back into the firm will be in terms of hours, expectations, and, and things like that to make it seamless. Because I think that predictability helps make it less overwhelming. We also have to be gentle with ourselves and our and our expectations about how quickly we're going to, you know, get back up to speed once we return. Exactly. And I think it just sets the gears into motion. So you are kind of in that mindset of what you think you will need instead of um, at the 11th hour, the week before you come back. Oh, shoot, it's really happening. I promised to come back 40 hours a week, and I don't know if I'm ready. So it, it just sets the wheels into motion in a way that the employer and the employee can navigate more successfully. You've been very involved with an organization called Mother's Milk of Florida. Just quickly, because we're running out of time here, but tell me a little bit about that organization. Um, the Mother's Milk Bank of Florida, they're a 501c3, and their mission is to support the health of our most vulnerable babies in the state of Florida by collecting, pasteurizing, and distributing human breast milk when the baby's mom doesn't have milk to give. Um, so between my three babies that I breastfed probably 12 to 15 months each, I was able to donate 43 total gallons over the course of those three babies. And I'm told that that's enough to feed, to provide 16,512 NICU baby feeding. In total. Wow. And as competitive as you are, is that a record? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't quite a record. I had hoped it would be, um, but there was a very generous mom of multiples. She had a lot of milk to give. I cannot compete with a multiple mom, but it's important because I think part of the normalization is some folks aren't terribly comfortable talking about breastfeeding in general. And then breast milk donation seems very foreign and very strange to people because it is relatively new. But if you think about blood donation, at one point it was new and very alarming to some people. And a lot of babies are allergic to formula or their little stomachs can't digest it yet at the NICU stage. So this is really life-saving liquid gold, they call it. Just to conclude, because I've taken up a lot of your time, you've had so many accomplishments. What are you most proud of? Well, having an opportunity to advocate for those that either have no voice or have no prior experience with the land use process. I take a lot of great pride in, especially knowing the experience my parents had embarking on this as individual property owners in rural, small town Connecticut, um, helping folks like them at this stage of my career, I take a lot of pride in. And also um, advocating for women like myself, working moms, so they don't have the same struggles that we all have had over the years and allowing them to have a better professional and personal existence. And just raising my three boys to be brave and kind and advocate for others and having that empathy, looking around who's struggling, what can I do to help elevate those around me 
that either don't have a voice or aren't necessarily heard. I want them to always be on the lookout for what they can be doing because they are in a privileged place and they need to recognize how grateful they need to be, but also leverage that to the benefit of those around them that don't have those same resources. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This was fun. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform or visit TakeItToTheBoard.com for more ways to connect. 